Good morning, everybody. Good to be here and see you all again. Uh, as you all heard in the email, if you read the email, Mr. Moore is feeling sick, and so I'm going to be filling in for Sunday school and also the main service. And I'm pleased to do that because um, because of the two topics. The main service is going to be over. Well, I don't want to give give away what it is. Uh, I don't want to steal all my thunder. I don't have any thunder. The Lord has thunder. But uh, today we're going to be going over biblical theology. And uh, a lot of people, when they hear the word biblical theology, they think, oh, it's theology that's biblical, uh, theology that's according to the Bible. But actually, the word biblical theology uh, has to do with something uh, more uh, particular and specific and that is uh, that has to do with typology. Uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with typology. Anybody familiar with typology? Okay. So it doesn't have to only do with typology. It also has to do with like following the storyline of the Bible. Uh, because the Bible is 66 books, and it's all telling one story. It begins in Genesis. And as a matter of fact, if you're, really, if you're very familiar with Genesis... And the key themes in Genesis, then you'll be able to f- track along with the arc of the story uh, of the Bible. You'll be able to track along with the arc, the plot of the Bible. Um, and this message, I was actually kind of hesitant to share this with you today because this message is actually a message that I adapted off of a book that we read at Grace Life Church. And you haven't read the book, so you might not have the context, but I'm going to give you the, the main points and try to uh, instruct you or teach you about what biblical theology is. And the book was titled, What is Biblical Theology? by James Hamilton, in case any of you all are interested in reading it. I, I, I highly recommend it because it's really for, like, laymen. It's not very academic, but it gives you the main thrust and the gist of what biblical theology is. So the first thing we're going to look at today is what do symbols do? Because in the Bible there are symbols. God uses symbols. So what is a symbol? A symbol is is something that represents something else, right? A symbol is something that represents something else. So for example, uh, you know, the first thought that came to my mind right now is politics, right? Uh, What does the elephant symbolize? Represents you know, the Democrats, the donkey represents Republicans. As soon as you see that, you say, oh, you know, you have an idea or a concept based on that icon. Well, actually, God uses symbols similar to that in the Bible. And biblical symbolism works the same way. And James Hamilton, in his book, What is Biblical Theology?, wrote that symbolism is developed through the use of imagery. Imagery. And through, the, and through the repetition of patterns and types. And these symbols basically summarize and interpret the Bible's big story. If you'll notice, if you read through the entire Bible from beginning to end, you'll see patterns reoccurring and reoccurring and reoccurring. And you'll see this pattern, uh, particularly in the book of Judges, you'll see this theme or this story arc, this plot that just keeps recurring over and over again. 
God, there was no king in Israel, so everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And what did God do when they sinned and they were delivered into the hands of their enemies because of their sin? God raised up deliverers, uh, which point ultimately, ultimately to Jesus Christ. But we see this plot reoccurring and reoccurring and reoccurring throughout the book of Judges, and we also see it reoccurring from beginning to the end of the Bible. So symbolism is uh, important to notice as we go through the Bible. Let's see. Symbols, I, I want to emphasize again that symbols basically summarize and interpret they explain the Bible's big story or the plot arc of the Bible. And I want to summarize the plot of the Bible. The plot of the Bible. The main message of the Bible is the gospel. And the reoccurring themes in the scriptures are creation, the fall, judgment, redemption, and restoration. That plot line reoccurs over and over and over again throughout the Bible. It doesn't just happen in Genesis. It happens throughout the Bible, and I hope we have time to explain that. There's a lot that goes into it. But for example, if you look at Genesis alone, you see that God raises up Adam. He creates Adam in his own image. And what happens? Adam disobeys God, and because of, because of his disobedience, there's a fall. And because he falls in, and because of this fall, uh, he's kicked out of the garden, therefore that's judgment. And then there's redemption. What happens? God clothes Adam in his nakedness. And then he promises, uh, he promises restoration to him. So creation, fall, judgment, redemption, restoration. That's the, the, the plot arc of the scriptures. And what happens? Uh, wickedness begins to increase in the scriptures, and then God raises up another Adam, Noah. And that might be foreign to your ears. You might say, what do you mean that Noah is a second Adam or an Adam type? Well, that's indicated in the phrase when God tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply. He tells Noah, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And just as the floodwaters covered the earth in Genesis chapter 1, you remember there was just water, there was a void, there was nothing, and then God said, let there be light. And then what did God do? He created. He parted the waters. He made the dry land appear. Sorry, I get choked up thinking about the gospel all the time, what God has done. But, uh, so he creates. Makes, he, he makes the dry land appear in Genesis chapter 1. Puts Adam in his creation, in his new creation land. Adam falls into sin. Wickedness is rampant. And then he does a reset with Noah. What does he do? He floods the earth again. He covers the waters with the flood waters, just like in Genesis chapter 1. And then he makes the dry land appear. And uh, this is actually similar to what he does in, in Genesis chapter 1. It's by the Spirit. The, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. He said, let there be light. And in the Noah uh, narrative, 
God sends the rushing wind or the, or the ruach, which is a word for spirit. So there's the correspondence to the creation narrative and to the flood narrative. So God makes the dry land appear. Noah is set into this new creation land, and he does a reset, and he says, you, Adam, you Noah, be fruitful and multiply. So Noah, Noah was supposed to basically fulfill and, and do what Adam failed to do. But then what happens? Adam fall, Noah falls into sin as well, and he's judged. He falls into sin. He's not the last Adam that would redeem and restore humanity because he disobeyed God's commandment. He got drunk. And uh, so then God raises up another Adam, another type of Adam. He raises up Abraham. So again, the plot is creation. We have creation in the initial creation in Genesis chapter 1. We have creation also in the flood narrative where he parts the waters, and he resets fallen humanity and sets a new Adam. Then there's the fall. Adam eats from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam drinks from the fruit of the vine. That's the correspondence. Then there's judgment. They're both, basically, they, they lose the opportunity to receive the true blessing of God because of their sin. That's the judgment. And the fall, I mean, the fall continues after Noah. Noah's not the last Adam to restore fallen humanity. We see that sin continues on even after Noah. So there's no redemption. Oh, and then, but then there's still promises. There's still promises that God gives. He gives them to Abraham. And these promises of redemption ultimately point forward to restoration. And we see that in Revelation. In Revelation, God promises to restore fallen humanity completely. He does away with sin. He does away with death. He does away with all the old creation, and he ushers in the new creation. So we have creation, fall, judgment, redemption, restoration. This is the plot of the Bible. That's important because when we look at the plot in all of the other uh, narratives that are in the scriptures, they're meant to point us forward to something greater. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not sin. He restored fallen humanity. Well, anyways, this story repeats throughout the Bible. God uses different settings. So this is important. I want you to pay attention here. So this plot, again, continues to repeat. It's a cycle. Creation, fall, judgment, redemption, restoration. And this story, this plot repeats throughout the Bible. However, God uses different settings, events, characters, etc. But it is essentially the same narrative. And we saw an example of that with Adam and Noah. Different characters, different settings, different events. There's an ark this time. Uh, this time, instead of, there, instead of uh, God sacrificing and clothing Noah in his nakedness, I mean, Adam in his nakedness, Noah sacrifices himself, builds an altar, and it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's the foreshadow of the gospel, the foreshadow of atonement and complete restoration. So in that way, Noah is actually a type of Christ. He's a priest king. There's an altar. He's functioning as a priest. He's offering a sacrifice. Um, 
Okay, so this story repeats. So here's a question, and then I'm going to answer. It's a rhetorical question. What are the three components of symbolism? And, and Hamilton deals with this in his book. And the three components of symbolism are images, types, and patterns. And here's a conclusive statement that I wrote. If we understand the Bible, we, will ha- we have to consider what its symbols stand for what story they are telling and how they're interpreting and summarizing what has gone before as they point to what is and what will be. So let's look at imagery first. So what is biblical imagery? Biblical imagery are essentially metaphors that God uses to explain the gospel. And God uses imagery to explain difficult abstract concepts. So here are three images that Hamilton uses that are from the Bible, and these three images are a tree, a root, and a branch. Well, actually, those are all the same type of image, tree, root, branch. Then there's the flood, and then the temple. So we're actually going to go into our Bibles in a moment so you guys can see an example of the imagery that God uses uh, to, to explain the gospel. So let's take a moment to investigate the tree imagery. How do the biblical authors use the tree imagery to summarize and interpret the Bible's big story? What verses do they use and how do they specifically use the tree image to summarize and interpret the Bible's big story? The answer, creation, judgment, and redemption are summarized and explained using tree imagery throughout the entire Bible, but we will look at only three texts. So please open your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. Please open. I really want you to see this. If you have a Bible, open up to uh, Genesis 2, 8. And we're going to see how God uses a tree, image, a metaphor to describe creation. Then we're going to look at Psalm 80. You don't have to turn there yet. To see how he uses the imagery of a tree, the metaphor of a tree, to describe redemption. And then we're going to look at Isaiah 5, how he uses a metaphor of a tree to explain judgment. So go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Genesis 2, 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so God is using this metaphor of a tree to to explain creation. Now keep your finger there and turn with me to Psalm 80, verse 8. Psalm 80, verse 8. So he's using this metaphor of a tree to now explain redemption. And the good thing about God is that he's very consistent. So if he uses a metaphor in Genesis, he's going to carry it out throughout the entire Bible. And so what we have to do is look at these metaphors in the immediate context of the unit that they're in, Psalms. We have to look at the the immediate context of how it's used in Genesis kind of see how the narrative is using this metaphor, but then we look at the entire Bible to see how it all fits together. 
That's biblical theology, is looking at the entire canon of Scripture and seeing how it progressively unfolds throughout time. And that's what the New Testament authors did. They did that. They looked at how God's plan of redemption, we saw last time I was here that this mystery that was revealed, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, was hidden in the Old Testament and progressively revealed throughout the canon of Scripture as redemptive history unfolded. That's essentially what biblical theology is. So, okay, so we wanted to see in Psalm 80, verse 8, how God uses the metaphor of a tree to explain redemption. So look at verse 8, Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So God basically says that, so who's the vine here? Can anybody, does anybody know who the vine is in Psalm 80, verse 8? Remember, a metaphor is whenever we use, whenever we compare two things uh, without using the word like or as, and these two things are meant to, uh, there's a quality that they share, okay? So he brought a vine out of Egypt, that was Israel. Israel was the vine that he brought out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it where he planted it in the promised land. And we see that in Jeremiah, uh, or even in Isaiah, uh, God's looking for fruit on this vine. He says, I planted you as a, as a vine in the, in the land of promise to bear fruit. I came and looked for fruit. There was no fruit there. It, you become degenerate, and therefore I'm going to pluck you up, cast you out into exile to Assyria and Babylon. But then there's a promise in Isaiah chapter 53. Let's go there really quick. This is not in my transcript, but you have to see this. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. And Isaiah is writing this. He says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's a, that's a direct reference to Exodus because it was by the arm of the Lord that he rescued them. Verse 2, For he, speaking of Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant. Tree imagery, again, vine imagery. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And if you follow the context of Isaiah, what's being said is, you Israel have sinned, Therefore, I'm going to pluck you up, throw you out. Now there's no life, there's no vineyard, there's no garden in the promised land. It's dry, it's barren, there's no life. But like a root out of dry ground, I'm going to send the Messiah into the promised land to save you. And that's why Jesus said, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. You are the branches. You are the branches. So we see this garden imagery in Genesis we see it in Exodus where he takes Israel like a vine out of Egypt, plants them in the promised land. They sin. Creation. See, we see creation. Israel was supposed to be a new creation, a new Adam, a nation, but an Adam-type uh, priest to, to, to uh, expand the borders of God's glory. But they sinned, just like Adam They didn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they disobeyed his commandments, just like Adam did. They disobeyed the covenant. 
So what did God do? He cleared it out again, and, he, and he's restarting, just like he did with Noah, and he's putting Jesus there, and he's saying, this time it's not going to fail. This time I will bring my purposes to pass. The promise in Genesis chapter 3.15, that the son of Eve would crush the head of the, of the serpent, Satan. That's what the Bible's about. Again, we have the, this... Um, this cycle, this plot arc, again, creation, the fall, judgment, redemption, final restoration. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 5, 1, 7 really quick. And we're going to look at this judgment in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. I love this I love this this passage so much because what what Isaiah is doing is he's using imagery from Song of Solomon and he's 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 applying it here to describe Israel. That's why I believe that's why I know that Song of Solomon is not a practical how to love your wife book only but it's actually about Jesus and the church because of this passage right here. And also, just for the, plain, the mere fact that marriage is a symbol of Christ and the church. But let's look at Isaiah 5, and we're going to read through 1, 7, through 1 through 7. So he says, Let me sing for my beloved. Reference, that's a catchphrase going back to Song of Solomon, but that's not the point here. We're trying to look at the metaphor of a tree being applied here uh, in the scripture. So, let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? God's asking this question that, that, that I have not done for it already. When I looked for it to yield grapes, when I looked at you, Jerusalem, for your fruit, for your good deeds, for your works, for your obedience, why did it yield wild grapes? Why were you sinning? Why did you break the covenant? Verse 5, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. God is saying what he's about to do to Israel. I will remove its hedge, there's going to be no more protection. The walls of, of Jerusalem are going to come down. It shall be devoured. Assyria and Babylon will come and destroy Israel and Judah. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. And it did come to pass, as you know, uh, Israel and Judah were sent into exile. They were plundered by Assyria and Babylon. This is what this is referring to. It shall not be pruned or hoed anymore. I'm not going to take care of it. I'm not going to cultivate the ground anymore. I'm going to abandon it. And briars and thorns shall grow up. Briars and thorns. What does that remind you of? What, what passage, what chapter, what book in the Bible do briars and thorns point us back to? Genesis. Why? Because of sin. Instead of blessing, instead of fruit, instead of blessing in God's presence, there's going to be thorns and deadness. 
desolation, famine. And look what he says, I will also command the clouds that the rain, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. He says what the vineyard of the Lord is here. So God is the vine keeper. He's the manager of this vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. He planted it. He took it out of Exodus, put it in the promised land. Now he's going to judge it because he found no fruit. By the way, this is foreshadowing something greater to come, a greater judgment. And that is the judgment that God will bring upon all who disobey the gospel, all who have not put their trust in Jesus Christ. But it's going to be worse than what Israel and Judah experienced. Okay, so that is the so we just looked at imagery. And imagery is a bit different from typology. According to James Hamilton, I might disagree with him on that. But he has categories. You have imagery in the Bible that's used throughout the Bible. Then you have typology, typology that's used throughout the Bible. But let's, let's look at what typology is. A lot of people um, have heard the word type, shadow, typology. And there's been a lot of debate about the topic of, on the topic of typology. Some people say that we cannot call a type a type unless the New Testament authors say it's a type. I disagree with that. Because, for example, Joseph in Genesis, Joseph from Genesis, uh, you know, one of the sons of, of Israel, he... Um, He's not called a type in scriptures. He's not called a type in scriptures. But when you read the story of Joseph, you cannot help but see the similarities between him and Jesus. There's a famine in the land, which is a symbolic of judgment. Then all of the nations come to him for salvation. All of the nations come to him, a ruler, a king, for bread. He's thrown into a pit by his brethren, Israel. They slaughter a lamb right afterwards and then they put blood on his coat, on his garment. But then he's raised up out of the pit and he goes into slavery. He's there and then he goes into another pit, into uh, jail, and then he's raised up as ruler after that. So there's a lot of typology going on there as well. As a matter of fact, um, one, one thing that's very interesting about that story is that uh, Joseph is actually in the promised land at that time. He gets thrown into a pit and he's sent out of the promised land. He's expelled from the promised land. He's figuratively judged and, he, and he's, he foreshadows the expiation that Jesus Christ did on, on behalf of our sins. He suffered outside the city gate. He goes into exile. So that's why I disagree with those that would say that we cannot see Jesus Christ in all of the scriptures. He's there. He says, let me point you to a passage that's very important. Very, very, very important. Go to Luke chapter 24. And I want you to remember this verse. If you have a highlighter, highlight it. It's, my fa- it's probably my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Luke chapter, 40, Luke chapter 24 Verse 44 through 47. This is the key text. This is the key text for understanding biblical theology, typology, etc. So he says here, 
Then he, then Jesus said to them, <clears throat> his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and so on, the Pentateuch, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So everything that you read in the Old Testament, he's saying, in other words, all the Old Testament is about me. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the scriptures being the Pentateuch, the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature. And he said to them, thus it is written. So he's saying, this is what the Old Testament says. Thus it is written. This is what it says. This is the gist of Scripture. This is the main point of Scripture, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And so um, if you want, Christ basically gave a synopsis of the entire Old Testament in this, in this verse. That the Christ should suffer. Thus it is written. This is what the Old Testament says. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the, for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations from be, beginning from Jerusalem. So that's the gist of Scripture. So I want you to come back to that. Like, let's say, let's say you're doing your devotion. You're going through the McShane Bible plan. I know the Moore family does that. And maybe you all do that too, which is good. That's a great plan. Um, But let's say you're going through it and you're in Genesis or Leviticus, one of the hardest books for people to stay awake reading. And you say, what is the point of all this? What is the point of the book of Numbers? What is the point of these genealogies? What is the point of all this? Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, 44 through 47, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again, and that the proclamation of the gospel should go forth to all nations. That's what the whole, that's the trajectory of all the scriptures. That's what it's pointing to. That's what the genealogy of Jesus is about. The authors recognize that he is the Messiah that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he says that he's the son of Adam. The son of Adam, the seed of the woman that would come to crush the head of the serpent. Okay. We're almost done. We've got nine minutes. So typology, I want to give you two criteria. This will help you as you begin to interpret types and shadows in the scriptures. If you want some, some uh, what do they call guardrails? Guardrails and, and some safeguards for doing typology because you'll hear a lot of things about typology that are not there, a lot of really weird stuff out there. And I think Paul even uh, tells the church, beware of these myths and silly genealogies and these quarrels about things that are myth-like. So this will help you with that. These are two criteria. and If you have a pen and a pencil, I encourage you to write it down or you could just come back to this message and listen to it if we post it. Uh, If not, you can contact me. So the question, so okay, These are the two guardrails that will help us in our interpretation of typology. If we're looking for a type, we want to make sure that that it has historical correspondence to Jesus Christ. 
And not just Jesus, but other types and shadows. So what does that mean, historical correspondence? In other words, a type is only a type if it's a historical event, an historical person, or a, or a historical person, person, place, or event. I'll give you an example. Person, Moses. Moses is a type of Christ. Place. The land of promise, or what was it? A place. Oh, the temple. And then a event. The the Passover is a type of Christ. It foreshadows the death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. So these are historical people. Moses is is a historical person. The tabernacle, the temple, is a historical place, and the uh, festival of. Uh, the, the Passover is a historical event. So they're historical. They're real. They're factual. They happened. So therefore, they are historical. The second thing we want to look for is similarities between the type and Jesus Christ. So why is Moses a type of Christ? He's a shepherd. He's taken from shepherding the flock to lead Israel out of captivity, just like Jesus did. He's also a prophet. Jesus is prophet, priest, king. He's the ultimate prophet. He's what all the prophets pointed to. So Moses is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. There's the similarity there. Or you could say correspondence. How is Jesus a type of the temple? How, is he, how does he foreshadow the temple? I mean, Jesus says clearly that his body is the temple that he would raise on the third day. That's what we're going to look at today. And then how does... So what are the similarities between Jesus and the temple? Well, the priests went in to, to offer sacrifices to God. We are a royal priesthood that offers sacrifices in Christ. That's the correspondence. Then how does Jesus foreshadow the Passover? That goes without saying it's obvious. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But, they don't only, but that's not the only criteria. Historical correspondence is not the only criteria. Another criteria is escalation. Escalation. So we only have two, historical correspondence and escalation. I know this is kind of heady, uh, but I'm trying to make it simple. So um, real events that, that are like Jesus but then they have to escalate. So, for example, the type in question cannot be uh, greater than Christ. Nothing is greater than Christ. But in other words, it has to be a type, and then there has to be escalation. It, there must be a, um, a way in which Jesus exceeds or escalates or is greater than the type. So why is Jesus greater than Moses? Why is Jesus greater than Moses? Because Jesus does not lead the people of Israel out of a physical captivity in Egypt against a Pharaoh-like person. Jesus leads spiritual Israel, the church, Jew and Gentile, out of spiritual bondage to sin, death, and Satan. That's how he's greater than Moses. He's not only a prophet, but he is God. And Moses sinned. Jesus never sinned. That's why there's that's that's what I mean by escalation. Jesus is greater than Moses. How is Jesus greater than the temple? Well, his body there okay, first of all, 
God cannot be contained in a tabernacle or a temple. He cannot be contained in this building. He's everywhere. And it's in Ephesians, Jesus, it says that, that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is universal worldwide. And it's not a place or a structure with stones. They're people that have been redeemed by the priest, by the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So that's how Jesus far exceeds or excels or is greater than the temple that was built. That's what I mean by escalation. And lastly, how does Jesus surpass, how is Jesus greater than the sacrifices? Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats could not wash away sin. That they had to do it every year on the Day of Atonement. But Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all and sat down. His work was done. There's no more sacrifice needed to wash away sin. That's why he's greater than the sacrifices. So, okay, let me just sum it up. In order to look for types, we need to find people, places, or events that are historical and that relate to Christ. But we have to show how, those, how Jesus is greater than those types. Okay? That's, that's the point of typology. And I believe that this is what Paul wants the Ephesians to know. He wants them to know the mystery that was hidden for ages, in ages past in the Old Testament. He wants to see this hidden wisdom of God. What was the point of the tabernacle? He wants them to see, church, Ephesians, look at the tabernacle. Look at what it was ultimately pointing to. Look at what these sacrifices ultimately pointed to. Look at what this exodus ultimately pointed to. So biblical theology and typology will help us to see the mystery the glory, the manifold wisdom of God and how He did it, how He brought it to pass from Genesis to Revelation. And when we do that, it says that we will be filled with all the fullness of God, which is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. That's why Jesus died, was to make us like Him, so that we would be glorified in glory with Him and see His glory, see His beauty. And another thing too, very important, Biblical theology will keep us from moralism. It will keep us from moralism. We want to be moral. We want to obey God. But it will keep us in check. It will keep us from falling into legalism. Because if we don't see the glory of Jesus Christ, all of our devotion, all of our works are just going to be like me doing duty. A checklist. Instead of, Lord, I see your glory and I want to serve you. That's true Christianity. I see your glory, and I want to serve you. I want to be your servant. So there are three categories, people, I'm sorry, people, events, and institutions, or it can be types, people, events, and institutions. So let me just leave you with one last thing. I have to, let me see, we have, maybe I could do this in five minutes. I think I covered everything I wanted to cover. I was going to show you um, Moses and Christ and the typology there, but I already did that.
<clears throat> so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get ready for the main service. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, and I thank you that you show your power in weak things. Lord, we were weak and helpless. We were dead in our sins, dead in our sin. And you made us alive together with Christ. You raised us up in Him and seated us with Him, in Him, in the heavenly places at your right hand. You saw our suffering, our plight, our sin, our, our slavery, our deadness, and on mercy you looked upon us, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to see your glory in the Scriptures. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> 